Good morning, church. Um, today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he, began, he said, Men, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you so much, Roy, for reading God's word for us so well this morning. Thank you, Elder Joseph, for leading us in this time of worship. Well, good morning, everyone. I see a few new faces with us this morning. And for those of you who are new to the church, my name is Joe. I'm the associate pastor serving here at One Covenant Church. We, we, hear, we are here to hear God's word this morning, and we are right now in the Gospel of Luke. And as we hear from God this morning, let's ask for his help as we hear his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for the salvation that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is through the shed blood of Jesus that we are now reconciled to you, that we are beneficiaries of your forgiveness. And Father, I pray that as we reflect and meditate upon what this means from your word this morning, I pray that you will help us to see that this is indeed your living word, and I pray that you humble each one of us as we hear from you. And Father, I pray that you would take this word and plant it deep into our hearts so that we may live all things in, in all ways for your glory, Lord. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who are new to the church, we are currently in the middle of a sermon series looking at Luke's gospel. And for this season, we are looking at Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Now you may remember from our first sermon that the focus of this section is to portray Jesus as a preacher, as a healer, and as a prophet. Now this morning we'll be focusing on Jesus as a healer and we'll see this in his encounter with a paralytic. And this passage is part of a larger section of conflicts and specifically these are conflicts with the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and they were known for being very dedicated in their obedience to the Jewish law, and they were known for being very strict in following the Jewish law. And they're also portrayed, if you look at the Gospels, they're portrayed as one of Jesus' greatest critics. And almost in a way, in, in this like big villainous way that they are all of us big villains, it's kind of like watching a movie and you have the villain that appears, and all of a sudden, the background music changes, 
right? So with the appearance of the Pharisees, it's almost as if every time we see them, you know, the background music changes, you know, maybe like Darth Vader's music appear, you know, started, starts playing in the background, you know, the Imperial March and all of that. But in a way, that's what we find with the Pharisees, that they are portrayed as enemies of Jesus Christ in this villainous way. And what we'll find in the next few sections are these constant conflicts with what Jesus said and did. And in many ways, these conflicts cast the shadow of the cross over Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the kind of opposition that will characterize the whole of his ministry, and it culminates in his subsequent death on the cross. And this passage is important because it gets to the very heart of who Jesus is and what he came to do. It shows us what our greatest need actually is, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. And brothers and sisters, you know, this might sound very basic to you, and especially if you've been a Christian or a believer for some time, this may sound very basic. But the reality is this, that we may know or think we know conceptually in our minds what forgiveness actually is, but we find it difficult to feel the forgiveness of God. We find it difficult to feel that our relationship with God has been restored. You see, the Bible when it talks about salvation, it talks about the objective and the subjective elements of salvation. There is the objective reality that you have been declared righteous before God and that you have a right standing before God, and that is an objective reality. But at the same time, there are the subjective elements as well, that you feel it deep in your heart that you truly belong to God, that you are a child of God. And these are, both elements are important. In fact, you the subjective only makes sense if it's rooted in the objective reality that the subjective makes sense only if we know where we are or who we are before God himself. And I think what often happens is that we find it difficult to feel this way, to feel that we are forgiven and we find ourselves faltering in the Christian life. You know, we become dismayed at our lack of interest in God himself. We become resentful towards other people. And all of these things, all of these moments are rooted in the constant lack of feeling the forgiveness of God. We go through life itself with a fluctuating sense of divine forgiveness. Well, Jesus will show us in this passage the nature of forgiveness itself, and he'll help us to see our desperate need for God's forgiveness. And once we see that, then we are in a position to feel it deeply in our hearts. And that is what we'll find in this passage. So let's look at Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, and look at it in three parts. Who needs forgiveness? Why is forgiveness needed? And what forgiveness does? Simple enough to follow. So who needs forgiveness? Why is forgiveness needed? And what forgiveness does? So if your Bibles turn there with me, or if your bulletins turn to the passage with me. So the story begins by giving us a picture of a day in the life of Jesus. You know, he was teaching a crowd of people with people coming from everywhere. And this includes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then we were told that there were some men who wanted to bring a paralytic before Jesus and presumably they wanted him to be healed. But they realized that you have this huge crowd before Jesus and there was no way of getting through the crowd. And so what they did was this. They went up to the roof where Jesus was teaching. They went up to the roof, tore through the roof, you know, by removing some of the tiles. I'm not sure what the homeowner thought about it at the moment. But they tore through the roof and they lowered the man down so that he could be 
down there with the crowd. And how did Jesus respond to all of this? Well, verse 28, this is what Jesus said. Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, if you're one of the paralytic's friends, you may hear that and be like, right, okay. But that's not quite the reason why we went through all of that trouble, you know, tearing through the roof and lowering the man down. That's not the reason why we went through all of that trouble. Uh, the reason why we brought him before you, we did all of that, was because, you know, we've heard of what you've done, you know, all of the miraculous healings that you have done. And we're hoping that you would heal him of this affliction, heal him of his paralysis. And so they had that confidence, and that is the faith that Jesus saw in them. Now, I should make a note here that the faith here is not used in the technical sense that we used in theology. You see, as a church, we believe that the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's not by our works. But the faith that Jesus sees here is not really used in a technical sense, but rather, as one New Testament scholar puts it, it's faith of absolute practical reliance on Jesus' power. So in other words, there was a complete belief. They totally believed that Jesus could heal the man, and they relied absolutely on his power to do so. It's kind of like going to the doctor, right? You have this illness, and you have this reliance, this complete reliance on the doctor to give you the right diagnosis and to give you the right treatment for your disease. And this is what these men were coming to Jesus with. They really wanted this guy to be healed. And in addition, you need to understand that in the ancient world, when you're paralyzed, you're basically excluded. When you're paralyzed, you're basically excluded from fully participating in the community. community. So perhaps all of them, the friends, and including the paralytic himself, they wanted this guy to be healed so that he could be normal like the rest of the people and could be included like everyone else. So with all of that in mind, you know, perhaps you're saying, okay, then it seems that getting healed is the most pressing thing, right? This is the thing that this guy most need right now. And what Jesus is saying is this, no, it isn't. No, that is not his most pressing need. His most pressing need is the forgiveness of his sins. So not social acceptance or physical healing, but rather the forgiveness of his sins. And it's the same for all of us as well. It's about knowing who we are as sinners before God and to have our sins forgiven. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that our health is unimportant because after all, Jesus, he healed the paralytic. If you go on to read the passage, he healed the paralytic and he was able to walk again. So it's not, he's not saying that our health is unimportant. He's not saying our bodies, our material well-being, all of these things are unimportant. Rather, he's saying that they are, they are of relative importance, that they are important in their proper place. And this is why we are ordaining deacons here at our church, because we know that Jesus cares for our physical needs. And this is why we are commanded to have deacons in the church of God, that the deacons are called to care for the practical needs of the church, so that the elders who are caring primarily for the spiritual needs of the church, and then you have the deacons who care for the physical needs of the church. So we see the comprehensive care of Jesus towards his church. So this is not what Jesus 
He's saying he's not saying that all of that is unimportant, but rather he's saying that the most important thing in our lives is to have our sins forgiven and to have a right relationship with God. And we need to recognize that we are not just physically sick, but we are spiritually sick as well. In fact, the Bible goes even further than that and says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But the good news is that all of this thing changes when our sins are forgiven. So when this happens, you know, we're not just healed spiritually, but we become alive. We become alive when our sins are forgiven, when we have a right relationship with God. So in the past, before we were believers, we were following the course of this world. But now, as Ephesians 2 puts it, we are now walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. And this forgiveness is not something that you can lose. You know, Jesus says that your sins are forgiven you. Now, this may sound a little awkward, but in the Greek, the verb is actually what we call the perfective tense. And what it does is that it emphasizes the abiding state of this forgiveness. And this means that once you received the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, then you are not going to lose it. You are not going to lose the forgiveness of God. You are not going to lose the fact that you have been reconciled to God. And at the end of the day, we need to recognize that there is nothing wrong with wanting to be healed. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be healed of our physical illness. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have troubles, quote-unquote, taken away from us. But let's remember this. Let's remember that we are going to get sick again. Okay, when you get a flu, it doesn't mean that you will never ever get a flu again. You know, just because you get COVID, I'm sorry for the bad memories, but just because you get COVID doesn't mean you are never ever going to get COVID ever again in your life. But it's the same thing. Just because you've gotten rid of one problem in your life and you think that's the end of the story, it doesn't mean that that is the end of it. That doesn't mean that's the end of your troubles. And that is the thing that we need to recognize. It's like the case of Lazarus in John chapter 11. You know Lazarus who was raised from the dead physically? But we need to remember that Lazarus still died. Lazarus still died and he died again when his time came. And yet we need to recognize that when we are healed of our spiritual ailment, when we are healed and when we are brought back from the dead, this is something that is ours to own. This life that Jesus has given to us, that life is ours forevermore. And so this helps us to see that, yes, all of us are sinners, but at the same time, when we receive the forgiveness of God, that is something that is ours to have. So now that we've identified who needs forgiveness, we can then ask the question, why is forgiveness needed? Now, that's the second point. Now, we are told in this passage, you know, how the Pharisees and the scribes responded. So you look at verse 21 with me. This is what they said. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you can just tell from their responses that there's a great deal of skepticism on their part. Now, to be fair, we need to recognize that they were actually somewhat correct, that they were half correct in their theology. The only person who can forgive sins is the true and living God. And, and they, know, they know deep in their hearts that there was only 
one God. And this is something that the Jews, they would know and they would be very familiar with. And the problem for them is that they had not recognized that God was in their midst. They had not recognized that the God that they believe in was actually in their midst. And they even went to the point of saying that Jesus was spewing blasphemies. And we need to see that, remember that blasphemies, according to the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 24, blasphemy of the holy name was actually a serious crime. In fact, it was actually a capital crime. You could, you could be stoned for spewing blasphemy. So if Jesus was truly the blasphemer that they said he is, then Jesus would indeed be guilty of such a crime. And Jesus have to be punished by death itself. Now, how did Jesus respond to the Pharisees? Well, he actually responded with a trick question. Look at verse 23 with me. This is what Jesus said. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Now, if you're one of the Pharisees, you know, how would you respond to this question? Now, in a sense, both statements are actually easy to say because all you have to do is to just utter those words. All you have to do is to just verbalize those words. But the problem with the second statement, which is you know, to rise up and walk, is that if nothing happens, then you will become a laughing stock. Right? If you say, rise up and walk, and then nothing happens, you know, the person is still paralyzed, then you will become a laughing stock. In the case of Jesus, what will probably happen is that he'll be dragged out and be beaten to death. So, what actually happens in the story? Well, what happens was this, that Jesus turned to the paralytic, told him to rise up, pick up his bed, and go home. And immediately, that was what happened. The paralytic, ro he, he rose, and he did exactly as Jesus said. And what are we supposed to learn from all of this? Well, the lesson is this, that Jesus is saying, as it were, that you cannot see the forgiveness of sins with your own eyes because that's not something we see, right? That is something that's invisible. And yet when I say that something will happen, then that very thing will happen. Just as what we find with, those with this paralytic, that he rose up immediately and started walking, and so too will you be forgiven of your sins because I said so. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this, that he is God. Jesus is saying that he's God, that he's not just an eloquent teacher of the law, but rather he is God himself. In addition, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jews, those who are present, will probably know the Old Testament very well, and they will be familiar with the words of Psalm 103, verses 2 to 3, which says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. And so, if, you know, Jesus was speaking to a crowd that clearly knows the Old Testament well, and by doing, by saying all of these words, these people, they should have recognized that God was in their midst. They should have recognized that it was God who was with them. Because only God has the power to forgive our sins and to heal our diseases. And this helps us to see something else as well. And that is, all of these things will only make sense if Jesus himself is the one 
who was sinned against. Well, C.S. Lewis, he puts it in a very memorable way in his book, Mere Christianity, and it's an extended quote, but I want to read it because I think it really captures the heart of what's happening here. This is what Lewis says. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of man himself unrobbed and untrodden on who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken. And what Lewis is saying is this, that this forgiveness that Jesus gave, this only makes sense if Jesus himself is God. This only makes sense if Jesus, who is God and man, was the one offended in the very first place. And we find this in the Old Testament well as well. You know, in Psalm 51, verse 4, you know, David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David says that he has sinned only against God. And yet, when you read, when you understand the context, he's saying this in the context of having been confronted by the prophet Nathan for his adultery with Bathsheba. If you know the context, you know that he not just sinned against Bathsheba, but he sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, as well, you know, getting him killed in the battlefield. He sinned against his family for the outrageous thing that he did. And as a representative of God's people, David sinned against the nation of Israel itself. So how could David say that it's only you and you only have I sinned? You know, how can, and how can we say that every sin is ultimately sin against God. Well, the reason is this, that sin against God is the root cause that leads to every other sin. Sin against God is the root cause that leads to every other sin. You know, the reformer Martin Luther, in his large catechism, he said that we never harm other people, and he's thinking particularly of the fifth to the tenth commandment. We never harm other people without breaking the first commandment where God calls us to have no other gods before him. And it's from this commandment where we are called to have our hearts rightly oriented towards God himself. It's from this commandment that all the other commandments follow. And so if our hearts are not in the right place, if our hearts are not rightly ordered towards God himself, then we will begin to sin. And that is where all of this sin in our lives happen. And so, if we lie, for instance, to protect our reputation, we have actually made our reputation more important than God himself. You know, we will do anything in our, in our strength to make sure that our reputation stays intact because that's how much we love it. We can talk about the principles that we have, the convictions, the beliefs that we have, but if our reputation has the highest place in our hearts, then we will do whatever it takes to protect our reputation. If we compromise 
but pursuing all of these other things, you know, prestige or recognition or relationships or all of these other things in a way that is out of step with our beliefs, then perhaps our actions more than our words actually reveal what we cherish in our hearts. And the question is this, do we leave all of these things as they are? Do we leave all of these things as they are? Or do we acknowledge that at the heart of all of these things is sin against God himself? That all of these things are sin against the true and living God? Do we recognize that when we sin, we're not just breaking the law of God, but we are breaking the heart of God? Do we recognize that in our sin, that we are actually grieving God himself? And if we do, then let's not remain where we are. Let's turn to God himself and let's discover and find what only he can give. Let's seek the forgiveness of God and through that forgiveness, the restoration of our relationship with him. And with that, once again, or perhaps for some of us, for the very first time, that God will become the treasure of our hearts, that he takes the highest place in our hearts. And this is why forgiveness is needed. And finally, let's look at what forgiveness does to all of us. It's our final point. And what's the response to everything that Jesus did? Well, look at verses 25 to 26 with me. It tells us that the paralytic went home glorifying God and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And I want us to notice the responses of the paralytic and the crowd who had witnessed everything that everyone was glorifying God. And there was a sense of awe that filled the entire room. And everyone knew and they could tell that God had done something amazing in their midst. That God had done something unusual, but it was something amazing and it was something great in their midst. And they were seized by amazement. Now, as I read this passage, I realized, and I think this is the case, that the crowd was actually responding better than what they knew. That the crowd was actually responding better than what they knew. That they were probably, in all likelihood, still unaware that God was in their midst. And even the paralytic himself, it's quite likely that even he didn't know that it was God who was actually in their midst. And so, what do we actually see here? What is Luke's point in this passage by giving us all of these things? And the point is this. He wants us to see that praise is the appropriate response to God's grace. He wants us to see that praise is the appropriate response to God's forgiveness and His grace. And how does that happen? Well, it happens when we know that this forgiveness that comes from God, that this intimate relationship that we have with God is the best thing that can ever happen to us. It comes from not just knowing, but delighting in the gift of this forgiveness, in the gift of having our relationship with God restored. And, and now our relationship with God is actually 
good. And this is how we honor God himself. And this is how we glorify God. And furthermore, you know, once we come to a place where we can praise God from the bottom of our hearts, then we are in a place to address all of the other messes, all of the other relationships in our very lives. Now, for some of us, you know, whether you are a believer or not, you may say, okay, I know that having a right relationship with God is important. You know, I can tell from your exposition of this passage, from reading this word, I can tell that, you know, having a right relationship with God is important. But honestly, I don't feel that I need that right now. Honestly, I don't feel that I need that right now. You know, I feel like, you know, the whole world is against me. You know, wherever I go, I feel like people are just against me. You know, there are people who have sinned against me and they have done all kinds of wrongs, all the wrongs they can possibly think of, and they've done all of that against me. And are you really telling me right now that my deepest need is the forgiveness of my sins? I don't think I really need that. What I really need is payback. What I need, what I truly need, is justice for all of the wrongs that they did. Well, friends, we need to recognize that it's not wrong to pursue justice. The problem is that we don't stop there. We don't stop with them getting their due justice. Instead, what we often do is that we seek vengeance. We seek vengeance and we make sure that they receive much more than, than all of the hurt and all of those things that we've received. But here's the thing, though. You've been wronged by people, you've been wronged by other people, then the way to overcome all of that is actually to forgive them. The way to overcome all of that is to forgive them. Because if you don't, what you're left with is basically a grudge. You're basically left with a grudge against those people. And what happens is that you become bitter. You become bitter and you become joyless. You are robbed of your joy because you are clinging on to the fact that you were offended, that you were wronged by these people. And you hold on to that and you let this grudge remain in you. So in other words, what you have become is this. You have become a slave to resentment. You have become a slave to resentment, and that does nothing to you except for one thing. It destroys you from within. The only thing that holding on to resentment does is that it destroys you from within. Now, I've came across this quote that I thought is very meaningful, which says this, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And that's what happens when we hold on to resentment, when we hold on to grudge. And that is how all of us, if we do that, that is how we die from within. And what is the opposite of that? The opposite of that is this. The opposite of that is the joy and freedom that comes from forgiveness. The opposite of that is the joy and freedom that comes from breaking free from that resentment and forgiving other people. And the truth is this, we can only forgive if we have been forgiven from above. We can have the power to forgive other people only if we have been forgiven 
from above, that we have been forgiven of our sins against God. Now, this doesn't mean ignoring justice, but it does mean this. It does mean putting the vengeance, that desire for revenge, to death. Putting that to death and allowing that to happen before we can pursue justice. So not vengeance, but actual justice. And without the joy of receiving what we do not deserve, we have no strength to forgive other people. We will not be in a place to forgive other people. And if, even if other people still dislike you, they still hate you, at the very least, you have the forgiveness of God, you have the love of God to keep you going. Now, C.S. Lewis, again, he wrote in another essay called On Forgiveness, and he says this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. We can forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And yet, in the same essay, the very next line, this is what Lewis says. This is very hard. This is very hard. And we will deceive ourselves if we think that this will be a walk in the park. We will deceive ourselves if we think that forgiveness is easy. I do have a story to share. I know I don't typically share personal stories or personal anecdotes, but I thought it helps with illustrating this point. Uh, some years ago, I got into a very heated conflict with this friend of mine, a close friend of mine. I'll call this friend, friend A, okay? I got into a very heated conflict with friend A, and in short, what happened was that the conflict went south very quickly. You know, it got so heated that we actually stopped talking to one another entirely. And to the point that we were just avoid one another. If we see one another from a distance, we'll just cover our face and just walk the other direction. And that was how much we sort of hated one another. And on my part, what happened was that there was a lot of resentment. There was a lot of resentment in my heart because I felt that I was deeply wronged against. You know, we quarrel, 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 and then I felt that this person, friend A, actually was wronging me in a very bad way, and I felt deeply wronged against. I was unable to forgive this friend. And for some time, what happened was this, that I basically went into a state of self-pity. You know, like, oh, I feel awful, you know, I'm terrible, and all of these things. And I actually allowed myself to be consumed by vengeance, to be consumed by hatred and by resentment. And on the surface, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I was kind of like, okay but I was actually pretending to be so. And underneath all of that, I was a huge mess. I was a gigantic mess. And then a year later, I had this opportunity to share all of those things with another friend. Let's call this person friend B. So I had the opportunity to share with friend B, and I said, yeah, you know, that was awful. You know, I felt wrong against, I feel miserable, and all these things. You know, I just had the opportunity to share all of that, my own experience of it. After hearing all of that, you know, this friend said this to me, and it's something that I still remember. This friend said, there's no meaning in your life if you're just going to be sad and miserable all the time. If you're just going to remain sad and miserable all the time, then there's no meaning in your life. You're just going to stay in it, you know. And this friend said, go back to caring for people. Go back to loving other people rather than just wallowing in your self-pity because other people are going to need you. 
all of these other people are going to need you. And so look out for them, care for them, love them so that you can be with them when they need you. And basically what this friend said was this, stop making this about you. Stop making this about you. And at that moment, you know, those words just hit me like a ton of bricks. They just hit me because I realized that I made it all about myself. And all of this resentment that was in my heart, I was allowing it to stay there. I was allowing it to consume me from within. And what at the, deep, at the heart of all of that is actually this. I had forgotten about the forgiveness that I had received from God himself. And very amazing, it was at that moment that you know, God's grace actually shone through. His grace shone through all of the darkness of my heart and it allowed me to experience anew the forgiveness that I received from him. And that was the beginning of me climbing out of the darkness and actually beginning to forgive in my heart. Now, forgiveness is still very difficult and actually what happened was this. It took me several years before I was in a position to pick up my phone and to text friend A saying, hey, I hope that you are well. And friends, this is what forgiveness does. Forgiveness gives us the strength to forgive in a way that we cannot do by ourselves. Forgiveness gives us the joy and the freedom, and all of these things are things that only Jesus can give us. And what he has done is this, that Jesus has healed our relationship with God, and he has healed our relationships with one another. And when we can see this, we can move from just knowing in our minds what forgiveness is. We can move from just conceptually understanding what forgiveness is, to actually feeling the forgiveness of God. We can move to a place where we can feel the full force of a restored relationship with God himself. And that is the forgiveness that we need. And friends, as we come to a close, you know, perhaps you're struggling with forgiveness. You find it difficult to forgive other people, but perhaps above all, you find it difficult to receive forgiveness. Because after all, you know, if all of those things that you said, Joel, is true, then I'm a really messed up person. And how can God forgive a messed up person like myself? How could God forgive someone like me? Well, the reality is this, that all of us are like the paralytic. All of us are like the paralytic. All of us are actually paralyzed. There's nothing in us that could heal ourselves. There's nothing in us, there's no strength in us, nothing that we can possibly do to heal ourselves. And if we keep ourselves from God, then what we're left with is fear. What we're left with is grudge and vengeance and shame and guilt. And that's what we're left with if we don't turn to Jesus. Instead, what Jesus helps us to see from this passage is this, that we are called to go to him. We are called to go to Jesus. And by faith, we can see for ourselves the kind of healing 
that he brings. And sometimes life will get very difficult. You know, life will get overwhelmingly difficult. And when that happens, we should pray that there will be friends around us, friends in our midst, who can carry us to Jesus himself. People who will point us to Jesus himself. But at the heart of all of these things, what we are called to do is to go to him. Go to Jesus. Go deep into the forgiveness that you received from God and allow that reality to fill your hearts with joy. And that is what Jesus came to do when he shed his blood for our sake. By doing that, he has reconciled us to God. And by doing that, he enables us to not remain paralyzed. By doing all of that, he enables us to walk in his ways. And so that's the reality of forgiveness. And I pray that we'll rejoice in that reality, that we'll rejoice in the healing of Jesus, who was the one who gave us the joy of a restored relationship with him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we think about your forgiveness, we see that this is something that we don't deserve. And yet, Father, despite all of our messes, you've continued to love us, and you love us so much that you give us your dear Son, your only Son, Jesus Christ, to all of us. And you've given us this great gift, the greatest gift that any of us can ever receive and Father, we cry out to you and we acknowledge, acknowledge that there are times when it's so difficult for us to feel that we are forgiven. We acknowledge that there are times when we feel, when it feels so difficult for us to feel that our relationship with you has been restored. And so Father, we pray that you help us. You help us to see your forgiveness afresh in our everyday life, not just today, but every day of our lives. Renew our hearts so that we and help us and give us a glimpse of your grace and your forgiveness every day of our lives. And Father, we pray that you give us the words to sing. We pray that you give us the words to sing that comes from deep at the bottom of our hearts, hearts that have been transformed by your grace and hearts that are able and wholeheartedly willing to sing of your praises. For sin. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.